This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Now, I have read a number of your materials, but I want to make sure I pronounce your last name correctly. How do you pronounce it? Depending on which continent I'm on, but Kolb <laughs> usually here. Kolb? Okay. All right. I wasn't sure. Welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm your host, Jonathan Master, and we are thrilled today with our guest. He is Professor Emeritus of Systematic Theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. He has authored a number of volumes, including contributing to uh, an edition of the Book of Concord and an introductory book of Lutheran theology called The Christian Faith, a Lutheran Exposition. He's written The Genius of Luther's Theology, uh, most recently Martin Luther uh, and the Enduring Word of God, and many, many other things as well. So, Dr. Robert Kolb, thank you for joining us today to talk about Martin Luther. It's a pleasure, Jonathan. We are in the anniversary year of the nailing of the 95 Theses, and so it's appropriate that we think about Luther a little bit. And I wonder if you could just give us a little background to Martin Luther regarding his early life, how he became a monk and eventually a teacher of theology. I know there there's a lot wrapped up in that question, but perhaps you could give us a thumbnail sketch. Yeah. First of all, a friend of mine, Ken Hagen, who taught at Marquette University, would have already corrected you. He was not a monk. He was a friar. And I used to say, Ken, why get so excited about it? And finally, I understood that monks stayed in their monastery and Augustinian or Dominican or Franciscan friars had the obligation to be out preaching and hearing confessions. And so that really did make a a difference in Luther's life because it meant that he already had, we might say, a pastoral practice and had imposed upon him a concern for pastoral practice, which fit into the crisis of pastoral care that beset Germany at the end of the 15th century, early 16th century. Uh, But I'd like to um, talk about, about Luther's early development theologically by comparing the definition of Christianity with which he grew up he got from his parents and his priests and, and also his professors at the University of Erfurt and the insights into what it means to be Christian that he finally came to hold. He grew up in a world that religiously wasn't much different than it had been when his ancestors had been converted probably at the point of a sword when the Franks uh, took over that central part of Germany called Thuringia. And the, the church didn't have enough personnel really to catechize, to preach, to, to bring the essentials of the biblical message across. And so the, the names changed, and I'm exaggerating a bit here, but the names changed, the substance, or perhaps we should better say the structure of religion remained very much the same. What that meant practically was that Luther grew up depending on his own ritual performance of the mass and of other uh, Christian practices, or practices prescribed by the church, we might better say, um, uh, these practices gave him an entree to God. Now, at the university, he learned that God's grace, of course, was necessary to make his good works truly pleasing to God. But he grew up with this system where, where he understood his being Christian, first of all, even with the help of God's grace, as a, a means by which, particularly through sacred activities, ethical activities weren't excluded, but sacred activities, sacred religious um, acts of service, to God would secure his relationship. And then he, the deeper he got into the scriptures, 
not only through his monastic uh, background, but his work then at the university, and as he studied the scriptures, he came to see that the, the direction in that system was wrong. It's God coming to us. It's God coming to us as a person who speaks his word to us, and that word that created the universe in, the, in Genesis 1 is the word that recreates sinners as they receive absolution, as they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, you talked in that answer about the crisis of pastoral care at the beginning of the 16th century. I wonder if you could explain a little more what you meant by that. Is that how you see the 95 Theses and the question of indulgences? Is that, is that what you had in mind when you referred to that, or was it something bigger than that? It is bigger than that, but that's a good point at which to uh, focus, I think, the work of, of a couple of German scholars, particularly Bernd Hamm, who's retired from the University of Erlangen, has been pointing out for some years that there was a there was a piety in the whole monastic movement that was uh, focused on Christ. Luther went through a phase where he was influenced by the the so-called mystical 14th century German theologian Johannes Tauler, where he practiced a theology of humility. You had nothing to offer God, you just had to humble yourself. But he never humbled himself enough, of course, because it was still in this system that was determined by his, in this case, again, religious activities. And even indulgences were being um, offered at ever lower prices. And apart from the indulgence uh, system itself, there was an attempt to make contrition that was necessary to receive confession and absolution from the priest, to make contrition easier. You didn't have to be so purely motivated as theologians and, and priests earlier would have insisted. So that there was an attempt on many levels to make, we might say in Bonhoeffer's terms, grace cheaper. So Luther's responding to that in his protest against indulgences, in his sort of theses against indulgences and the, the abuses of indulgences. And then do you see a sort of straight line from that to the things that happen in the years following that eventually lead to the ultimate break with Rome? I mean, in your mind, is that all the sort of crisis in pastoral care that you were talking about? Really, I think two things happen as a result of his 95 theses. First of all, when you propose theses for debate, especially for, well, both for students or for your colleagues in the medieval university, the theses did not have to express your your own beliefs, your own opinions. They were put up there to encourage debate. For the students, they were there to test how, logic, how good they were at defending their um, ideas logically or somebody else's ideas logically. The professor wrote the theses. Luther just wanted a healthy debate on the whole matter of indulgences. It hadn't been well defined by the church. And so um, what happened, though, with the 95 Theses is that for, the, for his opponents, for those who were disturbed by them, the focus shifted from indulgences, for the most part at least, to uh, the authority of the Pope and the whole structure of ecclesiastical authority that, that sort of ensured the safety of the world. And, um, and so Luther continued on the, with his concern for pastoral care, and that matured as his study of Scripture took him ever deeper, so that I would agree with the Munich church historian uh, Reinhard Schwartz, uh, who has argued recently that probably around 1520, 1521, 22, Luther's ideas had, had formed a core 
that really didn't change in the next 25 years of his life till his death. So that process is still going on, but it is a, a working out of the significance of Scripture with reference to the pastoral care of troubled consciences or of the unrepentant, as Luther would bring the law that called them to repentance. But his opponents were excited about the threat to, the, to papal authority and to the whole structure of the church. And so there were really two tracks, I think, or maybe more than that, but certainly those two, along which the Reformation developed. So in your thinking, it would be 1520, 21, 22, when his core ideas about justification by faith are really, you know, have taken shape and sort of solidified in his own thinking? Yes. I think there are a number of factors that some of them are there certainly much earlier. There's a theory proposed that his first major change was when he realized that below the substances of reality that Aristotle could talk about, Aristotle had no creator God, so what what he had before him and what he had in his rational head was what he had to construct a, a explanation for reality from. So, And Luther worked with that as he began his education, of course, because that's what his instructors were working with. But he came to see that beneath that is a foundation of reality that is relational, the relationship of the creator with his creation and the relationship of the creatures that he created, especially the human creatures, but the human creatures then with the rest of creation. All of that is based on a, on a relationship structured by God, by God's commands, but really living out of his creative, recreative word. And so that's the first stage. Then Luther, around 1515, 16 maybe or, or so, finds out as he reads Augustine again and again, that Augustine was teaching theology of grace alone. And that was his next move. And then he moved on to say that one has to interpret the scriptures with this distinction of law and gospel, the law being God's plan for us, and it weighs heavily on the sinner, crushes the sinner, but instructs those who have redefined themselves with the righteousness of Christ and then the the gospel is this gift of the righteousness of Christ, the gift of trusting in the in the righteousness that Christ won for us through his death and resurrection. And then a number of other aspects uh, come together with that, his understanding of being human passively as a child of God, um, given life without condition by the creator, and then having an active righteousness that flows out of that. If I am God's child, I'm going to act like God's child. It's his understanding of being human. And so there were a number of factors that were involved in his that third completing stage of his theological development. One of the works of Luther's that is most read today, and I think has most purchase on many who might not even be Lutheran but are Protestant or interested in theology is the bondage of the will, that great response to Erasmus. I wonder if you could set that in some context. Who was Erasmus, and could you describe Luther's essential clash with him? What were the issues at stake there? Erasmus was perhaps the most famous and, and most influential, most prominent intellectual north of the Alps. A few years older than Luther, but he had established a reputation before Luther. His service to scholarship was great. He had edited uh, some of the ancient church fathers and finally edited the Greek New Testament in, in 1516. Luther used his so-called paraphrases, a kind of commentary on the New Testament, and usually positively. 
got some of his important insights, uh, were grounded at least in the paraphrases. And then he, he used Erasmus's Greek text for his translation of the, the New Testament. But he recognized fairly early on in their relationship, they never met personally, but they corresponded and, and, um, and also corresponded through mutual friends. But Erasmus was concerned about the reform of the church, and Luther recognized early on that Erasmus was concerned about the moral and institutional reform of the church, as had many before him in the, in the later Middle Ages. But Luther was concerned about the doctrine, the teaching of the church, as well as institutional forms and, and ethical issues. So Erasmus wanted to prove that he wasn't part of this dangerous movement that was gathering around Luther. And so in 1524, he wrote a diatribe, which we understand is something not so pleasant, but a diatribe was really a kind of peaceful exchange of ideas. But he went to the heart of Luther's system, which depends on recognizing that God is almighty and that God is in control and complete control of our salvation. For Erasmus, the chief question was, how are people going to behave how are we going to keep good order in society? And he thought it was necessary then to place some responsibility on the human being for the performance of the kind of works that make society function well, good works. Luther also insisted not just on some partial responsibility, but really on the total responsibility of the, the human being. God holds us totally responsible, but at the same time, Luther had experienced himself that he could not, on his own, with his own powers, in, caught in sin, uh, come up to God's standards. And above all, he could not keep the first commandment as he explained it, fearing, loving, and trusting in God above all things. Thank you for listening to this episode of Theology on the Go. Our conversation with Robert Kolb continues on the next episode, and we'll explore more aspects of the life and ministry of Martin Luther. We're particularly focused on Luther this year because of the anniversary, the 500th anniversary of the nailing of the 95 Theses. We'd like to also offer you a free MP3. If you visit placefortruth.org, you can download Martin Luther's text, an MP3 of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Remember that we can't put on programs like this or any of the other things that we do without your support. So if you are able to give us a gift, we'd very much appreciate it. And thank you once again for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. <laughs>